Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 125, which today is another installment in the focus Researchers Talk. This focus, Researchers Talk, is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Torsten Holtz, Professor for Computer Science and Faculty at CISPA, the Helmholtz Center for Information Security in Saarbrücken, Germany. His research topics include software security, binary analysis, vulnerability assessment, machine learning security, privacy, and other similar aspects of systems and network security. So let's begin today's episode, Torsten Holtz on Researchers Talk. Hi, Torsten. Welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel, and thanks a lot for the nice introduction. So this is an interview, Torsten. Um, As my listeners will know, that's not really so much about what you research, but actually it's an interview about how you do that research. And basically, I divide a person's way of researching into three general directions of travel, you might say. The person's scientific network, their scientific reading, and their scientific writing. So perhaps we can start right off with the scientific network. And just uh, for clarification, I mean really they're the people whom you work with, collaborate with, correspond with, whom you teach, um, who helps you administratively, the administrative work you do with whomever, Um, really the entire social side, if you like, of science. So... If we might just look across that range of social activities, um, which would be ones that you would pick out that are particularly important when it comes to publishing the next paper? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think I published my first paper about, yes, I think 20 years ago, because the conference turns 20 this year, and this was my first exposure to actually publishing at scientific venues. The venue is called DIMVA. It's a bit of a smaller type of conference, but as I said earlier, in its 20th year. So, and um, even back then, I got to know Christopher Krugel, who's now a professor at UCSB in, so University of California in Santa Barbara. We met each other at that conference. A few years later, he turned into the second examiner for my PhD thesis. Then I was also a postdoc with him. And so in the past 20 years, we actually got in contact, started to collaborate. I regularly also visited Santa Barbara and he and Giovanni Vigna, who's um, the second professor at UCSB, we published quite a few papers in the last two decades together. And that's basically one of my, I can probably also say mentors, because I think I learned a lot from Chris and Giovanni in the way how to do research, how to work together with students how to organize a larger group of PhD students, how to make sure that you supervise them uh, adequately, and then also how to 
write papers, how to structure papers. I think especially UCSB is uh, one of those groups with whom I collaborated a lot and from whom I also learned a lot. Then You've touched... Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go, uh, go on, if you like. Um, and I think the second uh, group of people with whom I collaborate a lot is BUSEC, so Freie Universität Amsterdam, with Herbert Boss and Cristiano Wilfrida, two people who also work on system security, covering a rather broad area. And we also, we, we got to know each other. I think Herbert is a person I got to know when I was a PhD student, so around 2005, 2006. And since then, we also regularly meet. We regularly have um, just calls to sync, organize uh, meetings with our PhD students. We had joint projects funded by the European Union and also collaborated quite a bit, which also resulted in several papers that we have published together. So I think also from him and his group, I learned a lot on how to structure research, how to organize larger groups, because he is also... Uh, he has also plenty of PhD students. And I think also writing is something we uh, shared a lot of thoughts on how to basically structure papers and how to communicate uh, the main results. That's uh, that, that, that gives a very uh, detailed picture and, and, and also interesting, uh, particularly in this area of network that I was referring to, that you you have international contacts and you collaborate uh, with somewhat larger groups, obviously, out in Amsterdam, across in California. And what's interesting about that is that there's plenty of research in the area of science of science, which shows that those collaborations, those sorts of collaboration across institutes, across national boundaries, lead almost automatically, or at least disproportionately to higher impact papers. I, I wonder if if there's any way you could reflect upon those uh, uh, collaborations that you've just uh, uh, sort of briefly sketched for us there and, and, and pick out any of the moments in it, the dynamics of whichever groups or the resources of whichever uh, institutes or just the ideas pool that, that made those papers possible that you published from there. Mm-hmm. I think in many of the cases where we started joint projects, These were the results of brainstorming meetings where we basically sat together, had an idea, and then fleshed this out and then made sure that uh, we had at least a rough understanding of the goal that we wanted to achieve. And then we also discussed how can we somehow split the work? Because typically in these settings, we want to make sure that there's PhD students uh, in one lab and then also in my lab and that we have a rather clear kind of picture of who wants to work on what, such that we, on the one hand, collaborate, but also make sure that each student has his own share of the work. And then, um, yeah, I think mainly the result of brainstorming meetings. So either in person, which works best, due to the pandemic, we had to move some of these discussions into a virtual space, so typically via Zoom. But now that the pandemic is over, we also regularly meet again. And... I also spent quite a few weeks to believe in a, in a year in Santa Barbara back when I didn't have kids. So this has also changed a bit in the last years. But then typically I spent in the summer quite a few weeks in Santa Barbara. And this was also very productive in the sense that you can spend time with the other people, uh, discuss ideas, um, 
implement at least a proof of concept to study the general feasibility. And then once you understand if a technique might work, then try to scale it, try to make it more precise. But um, typically, that's an iterative process where everything starts with an idea, where we then distribute the work a bit and then regularly meet in order to discuss progress, to discuss new challenges, to discuss what the next steps can look like. And then once we are at a point where we have promising results, then we also start to think about what could be a potential deadline that we aim for, a potential venue at which we want to submit. And then we start to also sketch down how the paper can be uh, structured, what we want to include, how the experiments look like. And then that's an iterative process until we are at the uh, point where we submit to the actual venue. That really makes very clear uh, the process that's involved between researchers, the sorts of of pooling and resourcing that goes on, which I think very many, this, this podcast is, is directed at anyone who wants to listen to it for sure, <laughs> but it's also particularly directed at early career researchers. And it's been my experience, uh, my listeners will know I work with researchers to help them publish and uh, it's been my experience that early career researchers may not fully appreciate sort of the working relationships and the travel and the, you know, group activity that you've just described, uh, looking outward, not just for help, but also for inspiration or to offer help or to offer inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- definitely. And it's also about um, sharing uh, individual strength. For example, uh, one project that comes to mind is where then uh, people from Amsterdam, they worked on a compiler extension because they were aware of how to basically uh, implement something like a compiler pass instrument uh, binary during the compilation process. We are good at um, implementing other parts. And then by combining our strength, we were then able to build an actually pretty cool system at the end. And it was about identifying who is good at what and then combining the different strengths in order to achieve the goal at the end. So this is also often where we basically try to uh, combine individual backgrounds. And is this what I think you referred to earlier via these national or international collaborations? You try to find those people who are good at specific things and then try to work together with them in order to achieve even more at the end. And, and this needs to be balanced out clearly with um, the competitive side of research. I mean, it's undeniable that uh, scientists are collaborative. It's equally undeniable, though, that scientists are fiercely competitive and, and looking to get out the priority of their work. And from what I'm hearing in, in the relationships that you've had there with uh, UC Santa Barbara or in Amsterdam, these are long-standing, trust-built, even personal relationships where you can feel more assured, I would imagine, that the collaborative work that's going on is staying collaborative and everyone's joining in. I wonder if you've had other collaborations, um, you need not name names or institutes, where where this, this sense of security hasn't necessarily been there. Actually, um, and as I said earlier, I work in this space since about 20 years. I didn't have any very negative um, experiences so far. And actually, I'm rather or very open about sharing ideas because I think at the end, of course, there's this competition who publishes things first. But I don't mind if people basically are... uh, And 
I don't think that people really steal ideas. Um, therefore, I'm rather open for discussing ideas, even with people who I do not know that closely uh, or with whom we only recently started to collaborate. For example, uh, let's say Marcel Böhme at MPI in Bochum. Um, he's also working on fast testing, so a specific type of software testing a lot. And we also openly uh, share ideas, discuss uh, or brainstorm about potential topics. And I don't mind if we basically share ideas, even if we want to work on them, because probably we can also work together with him and his group in order to make a better paper at the end or more interesting results. So I'm rather open in sharing ideas. I didn't really have bad experiences so far. Of course, from time to time, we also get scooped by other works. But I think in these cases, on the one hand, I don't think that those other groups stole ideas or were basically somehow faster than we are. Okay, they were faster, but not intentionally. And on the other hand, being scooped also means that on the one hand, it's depressing for the students, of course, because other people have published very similar ideas a bit earlier. But on the other hand, I also always tell them that this is an encouraging sign because other groups had similar ideas. They had similar minds and uh, wanted to achieve similar goals. So this means that we are actually doing interesting types of research. And yeah, it can happen. But I'm not really um, aware of many cases, at least affecting me personally, where ideas were stolen. It's a competitive area in which we work, but still, I'm very open to collaborate. I think that's wonderful. And I, I really love the way that you put the spin on the idea that scooping can be an encouraging sign. And I mean, it is. I mean, this is the this is the position that somebody is in a focused research community, isn't it? And it, it sounds very much, and your track record speaks for itself, sounds very much that this this hesitancy to, you know, open up outward with ideas or resources or just collaborative potential is 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 kind of grown out of an unnecessary suspicion, a misperception perhaps even of what the competition of science actually means. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's not that we are running out of ideas. So even if, if an idea gets stolen or if somebody scoops us, it's not that we are then just sitting in our lab and don't know what, what to work on. There are so many ideas, so many directions you can still follow. So therefore, yeah, this can happen from time to time. I had one case where one student was scooped two times in a row, which was, of course, depressing a bit. But still, I also encouraged him that, yeah, he's doing interesting work. Other groups follow a very similar direction. So it's not that we do a wrong direction that's not bringing us further. But if other groups work in the same area, then, yeah, this can happen. Um, especially now with machine learning security, we see quite a lot of competition going on there. Um, in the system security field, it's more like um, quite a lot of engineering is often involved. So building and implementing all these systems takes months quite often. The evaluation takes quite a lot of time. So when we get scooped in that area, this is hurting us definitely. But still, there's typically always a delta to uh, existing work. So then there's, there will be an, another venue where we can also publish this. Maybe we need to spin the paper a bit differently, maybe extend it into a specific direction. But I think only very seldomly we had cases where we were not able to publish our results eventually. 
this this uh, idea of spinning or directing a paper is, is something I, I want to t- touch upon definitely in, in a moment when we come to scientific writing. But maybe one last closeout question here on this idea of networking. You brought up in particular when you said uh, your relationships there in UC Santa Barbara, uh, uh, the word mentoring, which is certainly one of the central key words when it comes to the network. Um Every scientist who's been successful has also experienced great mentoring. And I wonder if you could maybe just briefly tell us a bit more about that relationship and what was what was the key contribution of the mentoring that you had? Mm-hmm. I think I also need to take one step back because I think my first mentor was um, Felix Freiling, who later turned into the advisor of my PhD thesis. So I started to work with him back when I was uh, studying computer science in Aachen. Um, I think he basically made me aware of what science is actually about, how to systematically um, actually also think about the problem, and especially writing down ideas clearly. I can (laughs) still remember the first paper I wrote, where I wrote an introduction and also uh, other sections. I gave it to Felix. Um, The next day he sent me the revised paper it looked completely different so the intro was completely rewritten completely changed but it read well better Um, the chain of thoughts was uh, laid down much better than I had done this initially so I think I learned a lot from Felix about how to structure papers how to um, lay down ideas and I think this was my main mentor Especially given that he was also my PhD advisor, I learned a lot about uh, yeah, writing and how to basically do science. And then later on, yeah, Chris and Engin, uh, so Engin Kierda, who's now a professor at um, Northeastern University, they were the advisors while I was a postdoc. I learned a lot about also writing from them and how to uh, yeah, lead a group of uh, people. And then also Giovanni, uh, I think I learned a lot also from him about how to do research, how to uh, basically lead projects, but also that science is also about fun, how to do party at the end, given that we work hard and then there's also time to relax. And I think that's also something I learned a lot from the group at uh, Santa Barbara. So we also had lots of fun because science is often hard, often all-nighters that we did especially back when the deadlines were at 5 or 6 a.m. for us. And we often worked until yeah, late in the evening, late in the night. Um, so I think it's also a mix of what I learned a lot about them, that you also need to enjoy research a lot. I think that's a fantastic message, <laughs> um, which, which I think very many early career researchers will snap up <laughs> for sure. Uh, moving into scientific writing, which you've mentioned a few times there in your mentoring and even uh, in other respects, uh, as you were telling us uh, in great detail there about your your sort of network background, about the understanding of research, about how to do science. And, and I have to say, as I was listening, it sounded a lot and often like that's almost synonymous with how to write science and how to logically move through the argument of your science. Does, does that seem like an equation that just about works out for you? Mm, yeah, I think so. So I think I'm, I think I've published probably around 200 papers, maybe a few more until now. And if you take a look at uh, the way how we structure papers, there's 
for example, in the introduction, typically a clear structure that we follow where we try to convince readers by the end of the introduction that the problem we're dealing with is interesting, that we have encouraging resu results, that the reader should continue reading. And so we, we have a, a story already in the introduction that follows a, a very similar structure in many of the papers that we write. And uh, this is also how we typically address uh, research projects where we initially sit together, brainstorm about ideas, Not all of them will eventually manifest. Uh, sometimes once we have finished the first prototype, it turns out that the results are not encouraging, that we are clearly below the state of the art. So we also often disband in uh, specific projects. But then on the other hand, um, quite often we also have an idea that works out eventually. And then fleshing out the idea is typically about scaling it to uh, more complex um, problems. So the typical challenge is to go from zero to one, that you show that something works, and then from one to two, that you can also reproduce this, and then it's about scaling to from two to ten or something like this, that you can also show that you can automate something. Because maybe I need to uh, provide a bit of background of what we typically do. So um, my students actually implement quite a lot of code, so we often implement complex prototypes, tens of thousands of lines of code sometimes. And it's often about basically building the tool, building some specific system that achieves specific uh, either attacks or defenses. Although the attacks are typically easier to implement because there you only need to find one way uh, around the defenses. But if you want to build an analysis system or a defense, they are typically harder to implement. And quite a lot of hoops that you uh, need to uh, jump through in order to eventually uh, be able to implement the full system. So a lot of system building, but there we also follow. It's not a really receipt, but as I said, we first want to demonstrate that something works in an automated way, and then it's often about scaling or tuning the performance or making sure that the system works effectively and efficiently. And then once we are at the point where we can do experiments, then we also think about how to structure the paper. I mean, someone listening to you right now might be able to imagine that there's not a lot of writing involved in all of that work. <laughs> uh, no, and, and I know there probably will be, but it, it, maybe precisely to, to, to that point, also so, again, early career researchers appreciate what's going on. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, where, where you begin there is with some sort of a context, why what might matter or what sort of thing is not going right and bring it down to an area of, let's say, research interest. So what's the value of this? Or what's the value that we have to offer? And and I think as you, as you made apparent, it's just maybe with all the code talk and the scaling talk and so on, that maybe someone might imagine, ooh, yeah, okay, really, they're just programming, that it's, it's within those areas of interest and context that so much hard thinking needs to go on, and, and very much of that will happen, I imagine, in writing. Yeah, yeah. So it's because implementing the code is only the first step, because at the end, we need to communicate our results and then write everything down. And the actual implementation section, where we basically describe what we have implemented in the past month, is typically half a page, maybe a page, maybe two pages, so rather short, but everything around it. So the uh, idea that we propose, how it is related to existing work, 
how our system works on a design level, how we basically um, then um, yeah, structure, let's say, algorithms that uh, achieve specific goals or how an attack or how a defense works. This is um, actually quite a lot of the whole process. So implementation is important. This is about building the system. Then the evaluation where we uh, evaluate the system in different kinds of experiments also takes a lot of time. But then writing everything up, this is the critical part because there you need to make sure that you communicate your results in a clear way that readers can understand on the one hand what you did, how it relates to existing work, how it performs in the experimental setting, and then basically also convince the reader that this is worthwhile to read, uh, worthwhile to study, and then uh, also, yeah, um, at the end, the paper should make sure that other people can also understand what's going on. Of course, if they want to dive into the details, we also publish the source code. We publish our data sets such that uh, others can replicate our work. But it's typically these 13-something pages that we write together where this is uh, the main result of the project because this is what other people read. Um, and then we have diagrams in order to illustrate everything such that people can actually follow what happened in the previous, let's say, six months in which we did all the work. And then the paper is mainly the summary of our findings. From what you have just uh, very lucidly described there, uh, it, it's very apparent if, if you think back to that very first paper that you wrote and you told us <laughs> you handed it in and got it back in a different form. Um, it's very apparent that there you have internalized what your uh, first mentor showed you in that first effort. And uh, I think of this because of the uh, the way that you say when we write these papers together, and this is normal scientific practice, right? The collaborative effort of, of putting the paper together, particularly also with early career researchers playing at least initially a leading role and then slipping perhaps more into the mentee role as they understand how this published work now needs to look so that it will get accepted and cited. Could you give us an insight as to how that process works you as a PI working together with your own group members on writing? Writing is to be an iterative process. So it's not about that somebody writes a section and then this is finished and then nobody touches it anymore. But it's more about first starting with a draft and this draft is typically that we take the template. So basically just how the conference wants the paper to be um, formatted um, eventually and then first only at section headers and there we typically follow a very classical structure in the sense that typically we have first an introduction then we discuss related work then we provide a high level overview of our approach then we have one section on implementation details then we have one evaluation section where we describe the experiments then a section on discussing the, uh, the system, our results, and then in a conclusion and future work section. So this is the typical structure. Sometimes related work is not the second section, but the second to last section. This depends a bit on how we want to position our paper into the existing space of uh, works. But um, starting from this rough um, sketch, we then write down bullet points into the individual sections 
to, for example, in the introduction to just sketch what kind of storyline we want to write later on. Um, or typically what I tell my students also is to think about what the typical bullet points uh, should be. Because if you take a look at the papers we publish, um, at the end of the introduction, there's typically a summary that summarizes what are our key contributions of this paper. Typically something like three, maybe four bullet points. And this is something I always tell the students, okay, think about how you want to pitch your result. What are the key contributions that the paper should summarize at the end? And this is then also important. And this is something we actually do uh, way, uh, um, way before uh, yeah, doing the experiments, where we are still in the implementation phase, where we also start to uh, think about what will the key contributions look like of the paper. For example, that we introduce a specific algorithm that we have implemented and evaluated the system and yeah, maybe some other yeah, typically three to four bullet points. And then also for the other sections, we sketch down um, to be also via bullet points first um, what kind of content we want to include. For example, in the technical background, we want to uh, write down or explain basically what is needed to understand the rest of the paper for the high-level summary, basically what are the key components. Typically, then we also have a sketch of um, or a figure in which we describe a high-level view of how our system is structured. And then in the experiment, we either write explicit research questions or uh, write down what kind of experiments we want to do. And then once we have the rough structure, we iteratively add text. And this is, yeah, I'm not sure how many iterations this takes, but um, once we have a first first draft of the text this is uh, iteratively revised until we are happy and then um, yeah typically until the deadline we continue to write and um, everyone is doing passes over the text maybe uh, in order to um, make sure that other people can understand what is described or typically we also have discussions what we want to structure uh, or how we want to describe specific aspects and this is where then everyone is involved. Where typically the lead student implements, uh, so who implemented the system, also writes the first draft of the uh, overview or the implementation section because they know all the details. So they need to basically <laughs> say it's a basically a brain dump of uh, how the system is structured, and then we typically need to revise this to make it more understandable to um, abstract away some of the details because they are not that important at the end and make sure that we have a consistent way how to present the results. And this is then where I and also the more experienced PhD students help a lot in order to shape the paper over time to make sure that we describe everything that is relevant. And um, yeah, then after many revisions, we eventually are at a point where we have a first full draft of the paper. I'm very interested in this process that you describe from, let's say, the implementer's brain dump, quote unquote, through the shaping process. In particular, I, 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 was, I was drawn to this idea that you revisit early on and often the contributions that uh, the people in the study, the co-authors, expect uh, this particular uh, study to make. 
Because it seems to me that you realize more and more through the iterations what it is that you actually mean. I mean, I'm trying to say that, sure, the original work is done by the group. That's one thing. But to even appreciate or understand one's own work, that comes with the hard thinking about it, which is another way of saying the difficult writing through it. Mm. Yeah, so definitely. So um, as I said, the all the implementation details is something only the typically one, two, maybe three PhD students understand because they have implemented all the uh, the whole system. And honestly, I don't know all the details. So because I don't, I'm not that deep involved in the actual implementation. That's something where the students have way more experience than I do. But still, we have uh, typically weekly meetings or bi-weekly meetings where we discuss progress, where we discuss about also implementation aspects. But then when it comes down to writing everything together, then um, the students typically write the first pass of the uh, high-level overview and also the implementation section. But then we also need to make sure that we structure this in a way that this on the one hand makes sense, especially in the high-level overview paper uh, section. They are, uh, I typically tell the students, okay, think about somebody who's not that deep into your system. How would you communicate this to a fellow student who has a background in computer security? How would you basically uh, explain what you did on a high level within five minutes? So typically we have a, some kind of figure that provides a graphical overview of how the system works. But then we also want to structure this in a reasonable way such that we explain this picture, but also explain our thought, how we want to address the problem. And then this section is typically, let's say, a page long, maybe one and a half pages. And this is the gist of the paper because it uh, communicates the main result because it's the high-level overview of what we want to do. And then in the next section where we sketch the implementation details, this is then for more specialists who want to understand how we implemented specific aspects or how our system works in more detail. And by publishing also the source code, people who want to dive even deeper, they can actually understand our uh, code, so the actual implementation of it. And these two sections together are then typically the, the core part or the meat the paper because they present in a, um, on a high level but also with the system details what our system is about and then later on the evaluation section then evaluates the different parts and the distillation of these three sections so high level overview implementation and the experiments these are then to be the bullet points at the end of the introduction in which we have as I said, three paragraphs of text which summarize from our point of view what the key contributions of our work are. And this is then also basically, I would say, a pitch at the end of the introduction to encourage a reader to continue reading. So the main goal here is that the introduction lays down a story and then the key contributions at the end of the introduction they make sure that a reader is interested and he wants to dive deeper into the topic. So he wants to continue reading what our system is about in order to fully understand what we did. And so therefore, I think especially these key contributions at the end of the introduction, they are um, yeah, some, uh, some points where we put in a lot of thought how to formulate them. And this is also something we revise then in many iterations 
sometimes even until the last minute, because I think this is critical in order to uh, convince readers to continue reading the paper. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the process that you've just laid out there is makes a vivid picture, if I might circle back to this idea of networks, um, as to how collaboration in, in science actually works. Again, speaking to my early career researchers, I would imagine that very many of them might not entirely appreciate this idea that there are varying levels of expertise or informedness inside of any project. I mean, what you've just described as the PI is is common throughout science, right? That the actual implementers or the experimenters, even throughout other fields into biology or chemistry, who sometimes are also early career researchers, are actually better informed when it comes to the methods or the actual execution of those methods or the precise results that were obtained. But that does not mean by any means that another co-author or even the PI him or herself can't make significant contributions by appreciating those results of those methods in a broader context or providing to people who are very inside the project what the significance of those details really are. Yeah, I fully agree with what you just said because I think a student, typically when they just started with their PhD, um, then they often do not know how to properly communicate their results. Because there's also quite a lot of difference if you take a look at different fields, even within computer science. It's a different way if you write a paper for, let's say, a computer security conference or to machine learning conference or for, let's say, a software engineering or a human-computer interaction conference. So the different communities have different styles or different expectations, how the papers are structured, how you even write your text. And I think, especially in computer security, I have a pretty good understanding of how to write these kind of papers. In other fields, I also struggle. So definitely, sometimes we also get feedback from the reviewers that they had expected, let's say, a different description or a different way how we present the results. But here in computer security, I think I'm rather confident how to write this kind of papers. And this is something that early career, especially, let's say, first-year PhD students do not yet know. They are often brilliant uh, programmers. They can code uh, very well, build beautiful systems. But then once they need to communicate their results, they do not really know how to do this. So they need to learn how to basically write this um, main theme within a paper, how to structure a paper, what to write where, and which level of detail such that readers also can understand this. And this is, I think, something where I can provide guidance, where I can provide mentorship to my students or to other fellow researchers. Um, because I think I'm, by now, hopefully you're rather good at writing stuff and um, basically shaping a paper such that all the system details or all the code that has been implemented in the last months and then all, all the hours or CPU years that we spend into evaluating a system, that this is condensed in these 12 or 13 pages that we then submit for review. And this is something where I think I can provide my experience or the lessons learned in the past years and combined with all the technical um, contributions or technical excellence from the students, I think this then works nicely for us. 
We've given quite a lot of uh, attention and very many interesting things that you've uh, been able to share with us about uh, networks and writing. One other area that uh, this podcast really wants to draw our attention to is reading and science. In fact, I've even begin, begun calling it scientific reading to really give it a label so that people recognize the importance of reading and reading papers and understanding what other people have put down on the line to research, that it is actually a part of the research process. That, therefore, I'm also interested in uh, your view of the literature when it comes to the generation of ideas, the vetting of ideas, perhaps even, let's say, you know, knowing what the value of a particular result that you've obtained actually might be. Mm-hmm. I fully agree that scientific reading is important. So as a student, you are also as a not only student, also as a researcher or later on in your career, you need to regularly read papers on the one hand, obviously, to understand what the state of the art looks like, what new results have been published. But um, especially for early career researchers, I think it uh, is necessary to read at least on a weekly, maybe daily basis, other papers in order to understand how people communicate their ideas, how papers are structured. Because if if you take a look at papers that have been published at the top venues, you see that quite many groups also follow a similar way how they communicate their results. The introduction is typically um, structured in a specific way where you first introduce the problem what the problem is hard, uh, why it is important. Then typically you have a few paragraphs uh, on related work. So what other people have tried to tackle this problem. Um, Then also discussing the shortcomings. And then there's typically a section describing on a high level what this paper is about. Then also a high level summary or pitch of the main results. And then the bullet points uh, I mentioned earlier. And I think people or students uh, need to understand how we structure papers, how we communicate our chain of thoughts, and therefore they need to read papers to get exposed to existing work. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they need to only read papers in their own area, but I also encourage students to also read related work that are still in computer science, but not necessarily in the field on the very narrow field they're working in, but also take a look at other papers that, for example, let's say got a distinguished paper award or some kind of other um, award in order to understand um, beyond their core area what science is about, how to lay down ideas in a paper. And I think scientific reading is actually critical in order to learn about how to communicate with others. Because in science, this is mainly what many things are about, that you you do the implementation, you do the evaluation, but then the main result at the end is the paper, together with other research artifacts. But still, the paper is something that other people read, that they build upon, and therefore I think scientific reading is critical. Everyone needs to do this. And therefore I'm also a big fan of um, reading groups where you meet in a weekly or bi-weekly setting, Um, It's sometimes tough to implement this. So in my own experience, it's it's critical to have at least a core 
group of people who want to organize the reading group. But then this is a nice way also how to organize this. And then beyond the reading group, students and early career researchers definitely should regularly read not only their core area, but also related fields just to stay on top of what's currently going on and also to learn how to write because I think reading and writing are very closely uh, entangled. And I think that's a wonderful point to make as well, that you're not just reading for content, you're reading for how the content is conveyed. But what really strikes me about what you've just said is, is this broader view to the reading, you know, read, read also outside of your narrow focus. And, and, and that too encourages a, you know, a mindset where while I'm reading the text, I'm also doing it for the sake of the text, so to speak. And you may through that, but please correct me if I'm wrong, also you may through that, let's say ex negativo, be able to understand better the contrast between this focus and my focus or these two other focuses and my focus as to what we value, where we build context, how it is that we convey our contributions and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for example, I think if you read a paper that's not in your area, you also learn about how they structure the paper or at what level of detail they, for example, describe the main idea that they propose, but also, let's say, implementation aspects of it, such that you can also understand the level of detail that is expected in your own papers, such that people with a broader background can also follow what you want to do. And there, I think you can learn a lot by example. If you read, especially, as I said earlier, the papers published at top conferences, because they are typically written in a way that they, for example, also anticipate potential criticism, that they uh, make sure that in case, let's say, something um, is unclear, or, or typically they make sure that all aspects are laid down in a very clear way, or also that potential shortcomings are anticipated and that um, proactively also the authors discuss why specific limitations exist or they make sure to um, clearly stress what kind of shortcomings the paper might have. So they anticipate also potential criticism. And this way, how to basically uh, structure your paper, how to organize it, and also make sure that the reader is fully um, taken with you so that he can actually follow along the lines and it's also questions that might come up that they are proactively answered is something you can probably learn even if you don't read papers in your core area but related uh, fields because um, it's mainly or science is a lot about communicating your results to make sure that you describe your results in a clear way that others can follow and therefore it's I think critical to uh, review other papers and not only understand the content but also the structure how they are um, written together. And also to hear as you so vividly put it this this dialogue almost that's occurring between authors and and readers this an anticipatory aspect that a text can bring into it and and, and you're putting out there for all researchers and particularly early career researchers, this clear value to engaging with the text itself, because you'll only ever be able to anticipate and engage in a conversation like that through text if, if you've learned the language, let's say. That's perhaps one way of thinking of it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Also, so you yeah need to make sure. Also, I think the high the level of abstraction, because you're not typically writing for specialists in your area where you can basically focus on very deep parts of it, but you also need to convey your main results in a high level, such that also people with a broader background can understand and follow the main gist of your idea. And this is something I also learned quite a bit in the especially when I was a PhD student, um, how to communicate your results and what level of detail is needed or how to structure them. Even when all non or many of us are non-native, how to express your thoughts in a foreign language. And um, yeah, this is something you can learn by example and also by practicing. And as I said also earlier, it's not um, a static process, but typically we need many revisions until we are happy with the paragraph, how it's laid down. And yeah, you learn how to write by also reading. So this is, I think, also something, yeah. Very clear message. Thank you. Um, to, to close out, Torsten, uh, I always um, ask one last question to, to my guests. And it's related to one of the core aims of this podcast, which is really quite simple, to help the research. And by that, specifically, I mean help authors submit better papers, help chairs or editors publish better papers, help reviewers make better decisions on papers, and so on. So even even into the area of education, which which came out a bit in, in your talk where you spoke about mentoring and your own background there and, and the work that you do with your own uh, PhDs. So to cut that short, <laughs> the, the, the question is, is just simply... If to any of these stakeholders or groups, you could send out one message so that the research improved in just any sort of way, even if a small way, um, who might you pick out and, and, and what might you say to them? Oh, uh, good question. I think I would pick especially early career researchers and um, I would recommend openly discuss your ideas with others to get feedback on your ideas, how to get, or to get feedback on if this is a promising direction, um, if somebody might have uh, ideas, how to maybe reshape this or encourages you to follow this direction. So um, science is a lot about communication. So therefore also, even if the ideas are very rough at the moment, discuss it with others, either in your lab, with your advisor, maybe also at conference with other people. So get feedback because science is a lot about communication. And then at the end, of course, you need to go back to your computer, implement everything, evaluate everything, write down everything. But still, in the early phases, once you're still at the beginning of a project, communicate with others and get feedback and as much feedback as possible to make sure that the idea is basically shaping in your head and then later on in code and eventually in a paper. Well, thank you very much for that, Torsten. That is Torsten Holtz. He is faculty and research group PI at CISPA. This is goodbye from me to Torsten. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on this focus of the podcast, Researchers Talk.